Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge. This is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. A few weeks ago, I was at a conference on Brexit. Uh, excitingly. Sorry, just pause while my will to live seeps out of my body. Anyway, I was at this conference on Brexit because I was uh, chairing a panel discussion on, on basically the politics of, of towns and cities and how that fed into the referendum result. My, the panel for this included uh, a Labour MP for a, a northern seat, and I rather upset her, without quite meaning to, by describing the area uh, she represents as a part of Greater Manchester. Now, the thing is, that is, that is, that is true. That is definitely factually correct. I've checked many times. But she took some umbrage at this characterization and gave me a look, which I, I mean, put it this way. It was a look that made me move my chair back. So, so that was, that was nice. Anyway, I was, a couple of weeks later, I was at an, an, another conference chairing another panel debate about Brexit. This time it's the Cambridge Literary Festival. And the same MP was on the panel again. I should say, like, she was mostly teasing me. But to make sure I was feeling appropriately uh, guilty for my geographical error, she told the above story to, to the audience at the conference. So so that's nice. I appear to have got into a position where I'm being repeatedly publicly mocked by, by a Labour MP. Anyway, among other things... She's also just started a think tank, and there is a think tank researching the relationship between Britain's towns and cities and its economy. And I thought, you know, apart from the else, by way, by way of like attempting to get back into her good books, I thought it'd be a very nice moment to, to invite her on to talk about her new think tank, the Centre for Towns. As usual, I'll, um, I'll let the MP in question introduce herself. So I'm Lisa Nandy, I'm the MP for Wigan, I suppose for the purposes of this, co-founder of Centre for Towns. Yeah, so, so, okay, we'll get on to vexed questions of, of, of what is a town and also where is Wigan later on, I think. But like, if I could just start with like asking, you know, what was the, what was the thinking behind the centre of towns? Like, why, why, why did you and, and your colleagues kind of think that there was a place for a separate think tank for, for smaller communities? Well, just for a long time, I think I've been feeling that far too little attention is play, paid in our political system to what is happening in towns across Britain. We've seen some very particular phenomena politically in towns over the last decade or so. Uh, we saw very low turnout 
um, in the early 2000s. Then we saw this quite dramatic rise in support for UKIP. And Brexit really laid bare the difference between towns and cities where across the board in you know from places as different as Cambridge to Manchester you saw cities voting overwhelmingly to remain and the surrounding towns voting overwhelmingly to leave and a lot of work had been done on this by Dr Will Jennings at Southampton University who wrote a paper with his colleague Jerry Stoker about two Englands the two very different halves of the nation that had been exposed by Brexit. And so a group of us just got together and said, we've got to do something about this because there are warning sign after warning sign after warning sign to mainstream politics that there are issues facing towns that aren't being addressed and nobody is listening. And the response to Brexit really highlighted that for us. It just confirmed everything that we'd suspected is that it came as a real shock to a lot of people in the Westminster bubble that those towns voted for Brexit and that Britain ended up with a vote to leave the European Union. And the response then was to say, well, you know, those people don't understand the question or they just don't like foreigners. Well, the truth is that people in my town in Wigan aren't thick or racists. They did know what they were voting for. Um, And as one man said to me in Sunderland when I went to visit the Nissan factory there, the truth is we know that this is going to cause problems for our local jobs and for our economy, but we're going to do it anyway because we feel so strongly that you need to sit up and listen. That was the moment for me in the referendum where I I stopped talking, started listening, but I don't see much sign that the rest of Whitehall and Westminster has done the same. And so we decided that what you really need in the face of this enormous uh, catastrophic ism in British politics, of course, is a new think tank. So that's what we decided to do. Can't go wrong with think tanks. Well, it was better, I reckon, really. It was that or a Facebook group. So we went (laughs) for a think tank. So let's let's. Talk about Wigan. I've not, I'm, to my shame, I've not been there. It is, it is genuinely. You clearly obvious. have no idea where it is. It's, it's gone bright red. I must not. Okay, this is not. The, the first time we met, you were quite, you were quite mean to me, because because I, I describe Wigan as a part of Greater Manchester. Yeah. Which is, you know, literally true. Well, politically, it's true. So we, you know, we've been, we've joined Greater Manchester for the purposes mm. of administration and to work closely on issues around the economy but Wigan is I would say Lancashire at heart. I mean I get, this is kind of the, the the root of the difference between sort of towns and cities or whatever but how, how, how does Wigan differ from Manchester proper like probably not just the city of Manchester itself but like you know. Sort Did of you actually just say Manchester proper? I, it's, I was trying to find like a way of like saying because the problem is if you just say Manchester you are excluding a lot of places that are like Effectively, like Manchester, John, like I would much, just, much I would Trafford stop. I would just stop right now. I'm saying boundaries are a difficult business. <laughs> um, well, they are, uh, and they're, they're, they're hugely contested. But the reason that they're hugely contested is because actually, where you live is very much bound up with your sense of history, your sense of identity, your sense of family. You know, if you come to Wigan ever, um, if you stop calling it that part of Greater Manchester, and I'll, I'll invite you. Um, you'll find that people do genuinely really care about being from Wigan and they're very proud of it. And we've seen that actually across the country in that sort of resurgence of pride in being English, but also pride in where you come from in recent years. So it's hugely important then that those areas like Wigan or Bolton or other parts of Greater Manchester that have their own distinct identity don't see that erased by a political and economic system that lumps us all together and sees cities as those engines of economic growth with towns at best pulled along 
in their wake. Actually, in Wigan, we've got a history, an industrial history that predates the coal mines, actually, that, you know, we've had people working in the mills um, and then in the mines, on the railways. And as a consequence, we've got um, a lot of challenges. We've got the industrial illnesses and the legacy of that, but we've also got huge strengths. We still have a huge engineering expertise, for example, that doesn't exist in central Manchester. We have students come from all over the world to study at Wigan and Lee College, especially from parts of the Middle East because of the engineering expertise that we have. And what we need is a national system that is capable of understanding the difference in places like Wigan compared to Manchester and in other areas across the country and is capable of understanding those strengths and building on them, not just labelling us the left-behind areas, but actually seeing the assets and the potential that exist and helping us to build the capacity to do better. What we've seen in the the way the economy has gone the last couple of decades, not just not just in Britain, but in certainly much of the Anglo world at least, is economic activities increasingly focused on a few larger centres. So in Britain, obviously, that means London, but we're also seeing that to an extent with like the sort of the whole the resurgence of, of the city of Manchester and then Birmingham coming back up and so on. But you can also see this in the US, where like. San Francisco and Boston and New York are all doing incredibly well. Cleveland, Ohio, not so much. How can we sort of fight back against those sort of globalised economic forces? Like, what can we do to kind of encourage some of the activity that would previously have taken place in mill towns like, like Wigan, but has since moved out? How well, can we get it back? Well, I think what you do first is you fight back against the narrative that says that cities are the engines of growth and towns are the, are the drain on the resource and the you know, that cities have to sustain us. The reason I say that is not because I want that to be true, but because actually there have been a series of reports which have demonstrated that that is true. So Warrington, Wakefield, Durham, these are all places that the IPPR North found a couple of years ago were growing faster than their nearby cities. But none of that story is actually told in the national story because for at least 20 years we've had a view in this country that cities are the engines of growth and therefore you need to build these city regions the George Osborne model that enable towns to get the trickle-down effects from some of that growth and the reality has been twofold one um, that that completely ignores the assets and the potential that exist in towns like mine Wigan is actually growing faster than Manchester and when we first set up the Centre for Towns, the very first group that got in touch with us were the CBI, whose members were interested in towns because that's where they see the growth potential of the future. But it's also a problem because if you concentrate all of those skills and opportunities in cities and you ignore the infrastructure, the connectivity and the assets of surrounding towns, then what you do is end up hollowing out those towns And we've charted that at Centre for Towns about how over the last 30 years, whereas when I was born, Manchester, where I was born, was much older than the surrounding towns around it. Over that time, cities have grown younger and towns have got older. Basically, young people who used to leave towns to work and to study and then come home are increasingly finding they've got nothing to return home to. And that is a direct failing of national policy and a decision that was made in the early 2000s to base growth and opportunities and investment around cities and ignore what's happening in surrounding areas. I guess that's what I'm wondering, really, is like to what 
to what extent is this a result of like active government policy as opposed to those sort of global economic forces I was kind of talking about a minute ago? Like, why why is it that increasingly the the job opportunities, particularly for the graduate level job opportunities, are in London and the other big cities rather than in in the medium sized towns? I think it's two things. Uh, one is it was a very deliberate policy choice to try to use cities, not just London, but cities outside of London, as a way to fuel the growth of the country. And so investment decisions were made on the basis of what was good for cities, with very little thought given to towns. But it's also a consequence of how narrow politics has become too, and the very narrow base that decision makers are pulled from. It's very, very rare to see people at the top of politics making decisions about the country who come from those towns. Um, You know, you get a very city-centric approach and largely a very London-centric approach. So, you know, every Sunday I turn on my telly and I watch London-based journalists talking to London-based politicians pretending that they're having a national conversation when in reality nobody else is in that conversation because it's all based in London on a Sunday and so nobody else is going to be there. And what it means is that we can't hear what's going on outside of those urban centres but there are lots of people across this country who've been trying to tell us for a very long time that things are broken and that they're not working and that politics isn't doing its bit and we've had warning sign after warning sign after warning sign and we're still not listening so the local election results was a really good example of that those clearly a sense in towns of frustration, clearly a sense that mainstream political parties aren't speaking for people in Nuneaton or Amber Valley or Derby or Bolton, all those places where the next general election is going to be won or lost, but we just quite simply can't hear them. What's the solution? Well, I'd say that if you came to a town like mine, you would hear the solution was jobs, jobs and jobs. Um, it's not just having employment, it's the sort of jobs that we need. Because there are no longer those sorts of skilled jobs with career progression for young people to come back to in many towns across the country, it's left us at the sharp end of the social care crisis, it's meant the jobs that do exist are low-paid, often insecure work, um, and it's meant then that the spending power in the community is reduced. So you can see the visible signs of that in almost every town in the country. High streets in decline, community pubs closing down, banks disappearing in lots of smaller towns and medium-sized towns, harder hit than any other part of the country in terms of bank closures, because none of those things can be sustained if your spending power is reduced. So it's about finding those skilled jobs and opportunities and basing them in towns and taking an asset-based approach to the country. To give you an example, Heinz is based in my constituency. Why? Because there's a loyal, willing workforce who work hard and stay working there for a long time, and also because... The rent is much cheaper than other parts of the country because it's fairly well connected in terms of roads and rail and because there's access to clean, fresh water. There are assets that exist in smaller, medium-sized towns and larger towns as well that just simply don't exist within those big core cities. Businesses can see it but are constantly knocking on our door saying, but then we need more uh, infrastructure, we need better broadband. Broadband is the number one thing that businesses always raise when they, why did you make an investment decision or not? Um, We need um, 
better transport infrastructure and links, not just to link us all up to London, but actually getting within towns and between towns in the north of England is virtually impossible. We've seen huge amounts of funding cut out of bus services in the last 10 years. And if you walk into that chamber just down the corridor in the House of Commons, what you'll hear is a debate going on constantly about train services. But most of my constituents and most people in towns rely on buses to get around and we virtually never talk about them in here and this is the real life lived experience of many people and these are the key barriers that are stopping businesses from being able to invest and yet we're just not addressing them. Well it's the London centrism of our political culture again isn't it because if you live in the southeast of England you are very likely to use a train to get to work whereas if you live in much of the country you are much more likely to drive or or take a bus if you take public transport. And this is why the the hollowing out of our towns and the ageing of our towns has become such a problem because many bus services are commissioned on the basis of passenger numbers so if you have fewer and fewer people of working age in those towns then suddenly the bus service becomes unsustainable on current models and so it disappears and as my colleague Bridget Phillipson the MP for Sunderland often reminds people we're talking all the time about trains but there isn't a single train station in her entire constituency so when her constituents turn on the telly and watch us all arguing constantly about train services no wonder that they're fed up no wonder then that what you see is support for both Labour and the Conservatives declining in those areas because nobody is addressing those issues Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So what are the actual sort of policy leaders that we could use to fix this? I mean, like, it doesn't sound like devolution as currently constituted is likely to to cut it what would actually be a useful thing that the government could do for Wigan or Sunderland or similar places well they could give us the ability to make the decision and you're right that that doesn't look like the current model of devolution but there is a an opportunity I think for Labour here because although we're not in power nationally we are in power in almost every major town and city across the country and so Although we might be in opposition, we do have levers that we can pull. One of the things I'd really like to see, and I think there are some signs that this is happening, is that in those areas where we have regional mayors, that they start to think through seriously a model of devolution that isn't about sucking power up from local areas to sub-regional 
areas, but actually about pushing power down to people and thinking much more smartly about how we create opportunities in those areas. One example of that is the Greater Manchester Spatial Plan that Andy Burnham inherited. This sounds really boring. But no, this it's... is exactly the podcast for it. You go ahead. <laughs> I'm love... talking to the right people. They will love I'm... this stuff, trust me. Well, this is basically the development plan for Greater Manchester that was designed and agreed by Greater Manchester's borough leaders in Manchester Town Hall and then was handed to local communities who pretty much across the board, reacted with fury about it. Why? Because it does two things. It builds all over our green belt, but also the reason it builds all over our green belt is because it concentrates skilled jobs and opportunities in Manchester, and then it builds a ring of warehouses around the outskirts of Greater Manchester so that people in towns like Bury and Bolton and Wigan, if they're not lucky enough to get one of those skilled jobs in the centre, can go and work for a company like ASOS on minimum wage zero-hours contracts, um, stacking shelves or packing parcels. And the only sort of concession to the fact that we might need some connectivity was to build a great big road all the way from Trafford to Wigan so that presumably the managers can come and you know, manage and then go home in the evening. It literally replicates every single problem that we've seen at national level, at, at local level. And as well as that, it threatens to suck every part of Greater Manchester into the urban sprawl because by removing the green belt around those villages and small towns that make up Greater Manchester, you're essentially removing the sense of discrete history and cultural identity that people still really value in those areas. So the fury about it wasn't just that this was a pretty poor plan, it was that it paid no attention or showed no respect to the fact that people in across Greater Manchester have very different lives and experiences and value them and think they have a lot more to offer than just being able to go and work in some warehouse where there used to be beautiful green open space. And Andy Burnham, as the very first thing that he did, took that plan and said, look, there are problems with it and we've got to have a look at this again and is consulting local communities about it. Now, whether that translates into a different model, I don't know, but there are some signs, I think, that the closer power is to people, the more likely the political leaders are to get it. Am I right in thinking that before he stood down as an MP, his uh, seat was Lee, which is actually inside... Wigan Metropolitan Borough, isn't it? Do you know, you're getting yourself into all sorts of problems Am I got here. that wrong as well? Anyone from Lee listening to this is now going to be as enraged part, as I I'm not was. saying it's part of Wigan, I'm saying it's like covered by the same council. It's, it's, if it's not, then I really am talking nonsense, it, but they thought it was part no, of that you, you're, you're right that it's, it's part of the same council, mm. um, but you've managed to somehow wade into one of the most hotly contested issues about Wigan and versus but, Lee that you could possibly have done. I'm, I'm going to keep out of that one. I'm gonna, I'm, but, but all I was getting at really was that he was, he previously represented one of the non-Manchester bits of Greater Manchester, one of the bits that's like quite a long way from St Peter's Square and so forth. And, and still lives there with his family where his kids are brought up. And I do think it makes a difference that, you know, there's a reason that when I was in the Shadow Cabinet that people like Andy, John Trickett, John Healy, me, were saying we've got a problem with the EU referendum and that's because of the sorts of the seats that we represent and the fact that we live there 
and our families are there. So this isn't just an academic exercise. This is our neighbours coming up to us to talk to us about the EU while we're trying to put the bins out. So what what powers do you think councils need to actually sort of like get into this? I mean, like we're kind of like national government aren't doing it. It doesn't sound like uh, the metropolitan combined authorities are going to be much use in some ways. Like what if if like Wigan was was to solve its own problems, what powers would it need to do that? So you need a different set of powers devolved down. I would start with transport. There's no way that if we'd been given the option about where to spend public money, we would have started with High Speed 2. I think we would have had a debate about it and probably started by connecting up parts of the north, so particularly those cities and larger towns around the north that where there's virtually no infrastructure to get people from A to B. Um, but if you ask my constituents, the money would have been spent on local train and bus services. The trains around Greater Manchester are older than I am. And, and you know, we used to put it up with pretty bad weather, but, but it rains inside trains nowadays. <laughs> that is kind of beyond the pale for even for hardy northerners. So you, I think devolving those transport decisions would make a huge difference to us because we could work with business in order to drive some of that investment. I think this is starting to happen anyway. I mean, there's some evidence, particularly on things like energy and climate change, that councils are taking matters into their own hands. They're actually investing themselves and they're creating jobs and they're bypassing national government by working with other city mayors across the world in order to set some of those targets and and develop some of that infrastructure themselves but really in the end what is needed is a completely different political model and one of the great problems with the devolution that we've had is that there isn't much accountability in the system at all so you have to find levers for the people in towns to pull in order to hold politicians to account. That's how you drive change in the system, ongoing, lasting change. The mayor of Greater Manchester is like many mayors across Britain now who has, he stands for election, but between those election times, he's only accountable to the same group of local authority leaders who essentially put him there by signing the deal in the first place. And so if you ask people in the surrounding towns, what do you think of Devo Mank? They'll say, well, what's that got to do with us? You know, that level of awareness and understanding makes it impossible for for those decision makers to be held to account. So you've got to change the political system if you're going to actually change the way that decisions are made and who they're made for. Do you think there would be appetite for the right kind of devolution settlement because one of the problems I think that has often been with attempts at sort of civic devolution in England has been there's not much enthusiasm for it like I think it's brilliant the people listening to this probably think it's brilliant but but the electorate at large are generally not that fussed and if given the choice they often vote it down so like what would it need to look like to actually kind of bring people along do you think if it was to the right geography then suddenly people would care or do you think it's just part of the sort of general anti-politics well, it, has to be, it has to be meaningful for people so you can't say we've constructed something that looks like greater manchester and then and then say to people so therefore that means something and you know look at you and get on with it it also has to be realistic so uh, you know one of the great issues in many towns across the country is as, as the younger people have moved away and not been able to come back the skills base has got much lower and the level of educational qualifications as well it means people are stuck in work that is fairly low paid and if you're working two or three jobs or you're working shifts in order to provide for your family it's not realistic to ask you to then come and run your local hospital at the same time so there has to be an element of realism to it but I do genuinely feel that there is a burning desire for more power 
in places like Wigan. And when I was campaigning in the EU referendum, I felt that in towns right across the country, from you know from the south to the north, in a, a variety of contexts. I'll just give you one example. Very recently, Serco decided to buy up asylum accommodation in my constituency, and they bought up places in a hotel on the outskirts of my constituency and overnight hundreds of young men mainly from Africa arrived in a very homogenous village on the outskirts of Wigan with no warning at all and immediately we became a target for the far right there were people who travelled by train to come and stand with swastika banners outside and yeah all of that and whipping up hatred and hostility on social media and of course, straight away, I started to get people ringing the office and emailing, you know, asking, well, what's going on here? You know, why why has this happened? How long is, is it going to happen for? So I worked with the police to set up a public meeting um, and we sat and listened to the community's concerns and talked through the different reasons why Serco had done this and had managed to get some, although not many, answers from Serco about why they were doing it. The Home Secretary at the time, Theresa May, didn't have any interest in even responding to letters about it. That doesn't sound like her. It's very strange, wasn't it? It's almost like she's not you know, very interested in people. And um, the upshot of this was that we gave them as much information as we could possibly get, including what they could do to support the asylum seekers who'd been placed into this accommodation. And then um, a couple of weeks later, we launched an appeal and we've got 36,000 bags of donations across Wigan in just two weeks. Um, and it, what it said to me was that fear and anger can thrive when people feel afraid. But when they're empowered to act and to make decisions and to understand what is happening in their own community and to change it, the situation is very different. And for Labour, you've only won general election victories when we offer that hopeful optimistic vision of what the country can be this is an absolutely crucial lesson you have to empower people in order to support and make that meaningful change in their own communities and you have to trust that they'll do the right thing and this very Westminster bubble approach that says oh well they've voted for Brexit and therefore they just don't understand or they're you know they don't share our values appalls me because in the end, this is an existential threat for the Labour Party. I think if we don't start to understand what's happening in towns across the country, we're never going to be able to solve it for them and we're never going to be able to solve it for ourselves. OK, this is going to be my last question. I've, you know, Structurally, it probably should have come earlier, but I've held it back because otherwise there was a danger we'd just like argue about this for half an hour. But what's a town? What How is a are we town? Defi- defining towns here? Because, right. I mean, our, our mates at the centre of the cities, they call Wigan a city. So the biggest problem for us in doing this work at Centre for Towns was that it turns out there is no definition of a town. If you wanted any greater uh, symbol of how towns have been neglected and overlooked in terms of policy and policy making and research over the decades, I think it's the fact that we don't even know, there is no contest, uncontested view of what a town is. So one of the things that we did, uh, Will and Ian at Warren Centre for Towns, was to build towns using postcode level data. And we built up a picture of those towns, which Ian is currently sitting in a shed in Bolton, punting out to the general public, who are giving him feedback on whether those towns make sense to the people who live there. But broadly speaking, 
we've used the definition of core cities that is well understood, so 12 core cities. And then we've defined the rest on population size. So large towns over 75,000 residents, medium towns between 30 and 75, small towns of 10 to 30,000, communities between five and 10,000 and villages less than 5,000. We've tended to find that when we do events in towns around the country, which is quite a challenge because of the problems with transport that we've already discussed, people to turn up and, and talk to us about that and it does tend to seem to fit with how people feel about where they live but I don't believe that this is a question that is going to be resolved probably ever. I mean there are I think 64 cities in the Centre for Cities database there's only 12 core cities so like most of those are going to fall into your large towns categorisation. So we call them we call them large towns, and the IPPR North, I think, in the work that they did, called them small and medium cities. So there are different ways of coming at these places. But for me, there's something more important behind this question too, which is the difference, I think, in lived experience and often in outlook and in priorities between people who live in towns and cities. Now, of course, it's always, you know, when you start dividing people, it's all, there's always a... Um, you know, risk of stereotyping. But I think it is true that for those people who have chosen to stay or to move to towns, there are a set of priorities, time with families, green open spaces, community institutions, that are so important that they're willing to forego many of the things that cities have to offer, that diversity and that fast pace and that access to lots of opportunity. And we've seen those divisions heighten in recent years particularly over questions around Brexit but the division between social liberals who are largely now concentrated in cities and social conservatives in towns so I think there are actually bigger differences than just population size that mean that towns are very distinct places to cities and don't you tell me otherwise because we're the centre for towns. Thank you very much. Thanks. That was Lisa Nandy MP I'm hoping that, among other things, in the bright future of the centre of towns, will be some kind of tug of war with the centre of cities over over exactly you know which who gets uh, which which bit of uh, urban turf there. But you know we can but hope. I was quite excited about getting an MP on the podcast. I was thinking I was going to introduce it as the first time it's happened, but I realised literally when I started editing this and she was talking about Andy Burnham that technically he was still an MP when I got him on. So. So, sorry, Lisa, you're actually our second MP. But if any, if any other members of Parliament are listening, particularly any Tory ones, particularly a Tory MP from the West Midlands who would like to come talk about that area, I'd be, I'd be interested in talking to you. So get in touch. One last thing before I go, uh, because I keep getting requests to do this and just, just to, to shut them up. For those who haven't had the dubious pleasure, there is a group on Facebook posting under the name I can't believe I'm about to say this, but John Elledge memes for housing-deprived teens, which has been asking me to to reference them on the podcast for for a while now. It's I don't really know what to make of the existence of this meme page. I mean, I'm quite. I guess I'm pretty smug about it that that you know I've become memeable and that a, a couple of hundred people think this is something that they want in their lives. I, I, I'm also slightly jealous of the fact that Stephen Bush's meme page, uh, which 
Stephen Bush memes for New Statesman Loving Teens, I believe it's called, has about triple the, the membership of mine. So, you know, that alone that makes me want to promote it. I kind of have to pretend for the purposes of this that I don't know who's running the meme page. It's not somebody I know in real life, but I do know their identity because there is literally only one person on the planet who would think that was a good idea. So I do know who you are. But anyway, if you are the kind of person who wants to rip publicly rip the piss out of me then then why not sign up to john ellidge memes for housing deprived teens on facebook or you can just do it in the usual way and and send me a tweet <laughs> anyway we'll see you next time Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.